Hello there, Dennis Prager here with Fireside Chat number 330. 30. Wow, it's dramatic. Not that dramatic. Hi, everyone. Chance for me to say what's on my mind and chance for you to ask questions. Been doing this for 330 weeks, which is a long time when you think about it. I always open up with some thoughts. And by the way, talking about thoughts, <laughs> I'm going off on a tangent within, this might be a record, the first 60 seconds and I'm already on a tangent. But I just thought you'd find this of interest. Anyway, tangents are interesting. Uh, well, tangent, interesting tangents are interesting. So I have a thought factory in here. That's why I often drive with no music or, or anything else on. And I am very, very entertained, as it were. Uh, uh, my mind just comes up with thoughts. And, and I didn't do anything. I didn't take any credit for it, which is a good segue, really, into what I want to talk to you about, which has two, at least two dimensions. And I've mentioned this in passing, but never as an opening comment. The notion that we have two natures, human nature, which everybody has, that's it's called, it's called human nature. And then there's our own nature. I could prove to you how everybody has their own nature. I'm not sure it needs any proof. I think most of you acknowledge this. But here's a, here's a common sense, common proof. How many people have a very similar nature to their siblings? <laughs> Isn't it funny? I have one sibling, the wonderful human being. And had we been raised one in Thailand and the other in Argentina, I don't think we would have had more different natures. <laughs> it's just the way it is. But we were raised the same biological parents, to the best of our knowledge, in the same homes. So it's very similar obviously, environment. And, and it, it just, it, it is what it is. The reason, one of the many, many reasons it's so important to, to understand that, that we have two natures, human nature and our own nature, is there's no way to work out life, work through life, if you don't know that. And that's why I talked about Last uh, last fireside chat and so many others. Uh, even even uh, Taylor Swift has a song about this. Was it the antihero when she you know she looks in in the mirror and she sees the problem? There doesn't even seem to be a reason today. Although whenever I mention Taylor Swift, it's amazing. Which is true since I've never mentioned her before. So it is true that whenever I mention Taylor Swift, one of the dogs barks. We could actually keep that in the video. <laughs> I don't see any reason to remove it. Why, why can't you be privy to the silliness that takes place off camera? Well, she, so we ha she has this song, you know, we're, we're our problem. So that's one of the major reasons it's important to understand. You've got to battle human nature and you've got to battle your own nature. That's lots, a lot of battling to do. 
But Megan, the great Megan, the owner of the most famous arm in America, has uh, raised a very interesting point uh, that really does need, need to be addressed that's related to this. How many people think that their issues in life emanate from some trauma that occurred to them in their, uh, in their home, in their childhood? Is that correct? That's what you were, you were mm-hmm. and you're right. And I'm thinking, there. Are, I have a lot of reactions to that. This is obviously very important. One reaction is, even if one endures trauma, it, it the way in which we respond to it is in part because of our nature. I'll give you a, a really powerful example, a name that was a household name in America until he died a few years ago, Charles Krauthammer. He was a uh, widely respected co- uh, com- commentator uh, on uh, cable news. When Charles Krauthammer was around 20 years old, he was, at, or 21, 22 years old, whatever it was, he, he was a student at Harvard Medical School. And he was also a swimmer, an athlete. He, he dived into a, a pool, I think at Harvard, but I don't know, it doesn't matter. And he didn't know how shallow it was. And he crushed uh, the upper part of his spine and he was paralyzed from the neck down. Now, imagine if this happened to you at 22 years of age or whatever it was. You you have every right to enter a, not only depression, but a lifelong depression. Not only did he not enter a lifelong depression, he graduated with the same class he was in. He did not fall behind by one semester, which is hard if you are fine in medical school. My brother went to Harvard Medical School. It was it was tough. Those were the days when Harvard meant something. It had credibility. It has none today, and it just it's part of my rule of life. Most thing, most important thing you might need to know. Whatever the left touches, it ruins whether it's Harvard or medicine or the arts or, or kids' happiness, uh, it, do, it doesn't matter. Anyway, Harvard Medical School at that time meant something. He decided, I, I'm going to live life. He actually read his textbooks in bed, lying on his back, with their being beamed up to the ceiling. And, and, you know, this predates computers and everything, obviously. But obviously that technology did exist then. So it's interesting, Charles Krauthammer really did have a trauma. That's about as traumatic as it gets. And, And his reaction, however, was so positive. So that's, that's his nature. I, I'm not taking away credit from him. He gets immense credit, but obviously part of it was that was his nature. Two people can endure the exact same thing and react entirely differently. So if you are attributing your unhappiness 
uh, or, or, or uh, failure in life to some trauma, it, it, it may not be the case. And even if, if that is the case, your reaction to it still determines how traumatic the trauma is. This is the great thesis of one of the 10 books that most shaped my life, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl, F-R-A-N-K-L, if you want to read the book, you could read it in one night, Man's Search for Meaning. Viktor Frankl was a psychoanalyst, psychiatrist, psychoanalyst in, uh, in, in uh, Austria who was a Jew, was sent to a Nazi concentration camp, lost members of his family, murdered by the Nazis. And he developed a theory about life uh, in his horrific uh, circumstances. And one of them, which did shape my life, I read it in high school, was the issue in life is not as much what happens to you as it is how do you react to it? As he put it, we had no say over our life. We didn't even have, we didn't have a say on whether we died or lived. We didn't have a say whether we ate or starved. We didn't have a say of whether we could relieve ourselves or not, sleep or not, work or not. We had only one freedom, and that was the freedom of how we reacted. So this is a response to those who walk around thinking, oh, my issues emanate from something external to me. They might, but in most cases, they don't. They, They react from you, your human nature, your own nature, or the way you have reacted to what has happened to you. Almost everybody could point to some big issue that was negative in their life. Almost everybody. You know how many kids' parents have divorced? Millions, tens of millions. For for some, it was a very painful thing that they moved moved on from. For some, it was a trauma from which they never recovered. How, How do you explain that? There are people whose parents never divorced who are not doing very well at all in life. How do you explain that one? I, I, I look at my own life, which is hardly, uh, hardly traumatic. Uh, I've had my series of pain like everybody else, but in my childhood, I could describe my childhood in ways that you would think, oh my God, I can't believe he's at all happy or healthy. Believe me, I could describe, and it wouldn't be an exaggeration, but I've never looked at it like that. Most most people have issues because it's not easy to grow up. It's not easy to be a parent. That's why so many people are choosing not to be parents. It's much easier to go to restaurants than change diapers, let alone than deal with a difficult child. So I, I, I generally don't buy the trauma issue, although there are obviously people who have. A, a dear friend of mine, not a relative, but a woman married to a dear friend of mine, and they're both dear friends. She was abused by her father. Father. 
when she was a little girl. I mean, that's, that's genuine bad. That's really trauma. And she's about as healthy a person as I've ever known. She just decided, I am not going to allow that to define my life. That's what everybody has to say. I will not allow that to define my life. So, you, the day you recognize you are the architect of your own building, you'll, you will have a much more wonderful building, a much better life. What we have done, and this is part of the reason that I... I'm so angry at the damage the left has done to people and to society because they have taught a whole generation. You, your problems don't emanate from your nature. They don't emanate from the mirror, to use Taylor Swift's song. They emanate from society. You're a woman. Society is patriarchal and misogynist. You're not white uh, you don't have white privilege, and you live in a systemically racist society, and you just go down the list. You poor thing. The day you adopt that view that I am the victim of the society is the worst day of your life, even if you don't know it. Okie doke. I guess you could title that Be Your your own architect. And now... Hi, Dennis. I'm Curtis from Redondo oh, Beach, longtime fan. Here's my question. Most people know you from your five-minute videos, but you're no stranger to the arts. With your love of literature, music, and of course, conducting, you're one of countless conservatives who love high art and want it to flourish. But the arts and arts institutions are notoriously left-wing. So what's your advice for conservatives who want to influence people by making high art and not just polemics? Mm. So a few words, hold out if you would, a few words about this. One of the glories of Western civilization has been the music, architecture, literature, poetry, graphic arts, in, in some ways it's been the greatest in the world. And I know people find that offensive, which is so ridiculous. A ask, ask vast numbers of Japanese, what is the greatest music in the world? And most of them, or vast numbers of them will say Beethoven or Bach. They, they won't pick a Japanese composer, ancient or modern. I mean, I'm a Jew. I don't think Jewish music rivals Beethoven or Schubert or Bach or Haydn. And by the way, they're all German and Austrian. Didn't treat the Jews all that well. But great is great. End of issue. It, it's just great stuff. I have a number of friends in some of the greatest orchestras in America. And they tell me how much silly, nonsensical music is written, but they have to play it because they're, they're, they're board of directors, they're the, the, 
the lay people who run the orchestra are, are often so woke and so afraid of the local newspapers, music critics, they have to play music written in our time. And by the way, if it's good, I'm totally for music written in our time. But what should determine it is whether it's good, not, not whether, whether it's written in our time or whether a black or a white or a woman or a man wrote the music. All that matters is the music. But you're, you're right. The arts are run by the left. And that's, that's part of the reason that museums of, of contemporary art are so awful. They put up an, I, I'm not joking. I mean, you have no idea how bad things are in the, in the modern art world. Uh, a big museum in the Netherlands, you could look this up, had a turd, T-U-R-D, a turd sculpture exhibit in a giant hall. And the New York Times reviewed it seriously. Giant sculpted poop. It belongs in San Francisco, except that San Francisco has the real thing, so maybe it's not, you don't need to commemorate it in a museum. And uh, I think it was the Guggenheim in New York, one of the most prestigious modern museums or museums of modern art. They, the guy, the quote-unquote artist, uh, stuck a nail in a banana peel. Or, or half a banana, I don't recall, I think it was a banana peel, onto a wall, and that was an exhibit. That was an exhibit, banana peel. So what are we supposed to do, we who love art and want to pass it on to the next generation? It's a very real problem, that, what you've posed. I, I, I could see, see, if the people with money who support the great orchestras, let's say, or the great museums said... We, we won't be woke. We will pass on only the greatest art, only the greatest music, only the greatest sculptures. That would be something. There is a picture. You should all look at this. There's a bridge in Germany, uh, and it was redesigned. The original was this stunning, stunning, like, entrance to the bridge of, of, a, of beautiful sculptured a gate-like, uh, beautiful, uh, out, out of, uh, you know, I guess granite, or not granite, or cement, whatever it was. It's gorgeous. They redid it, and now it's so bland. The whole bridge is so bland. By the way, that's happened to everything. We went, the gorgeous buildings and, and the architecture of 100 years ago, compared to the blandness of today, and it's true for synagogues and churches, too. Went from gorgeous, uplifting to warehouses. So, yeah, it's a real problem you raised. Okay. Next. Schneer, 39, Jerusalem. Hi, Dennis. I always had wanted to write to you, but I'd never yet done so. I very much enjoy your thought-provoking fireside chat. In your recent episode, number third, 324, you mentioned the saying, Man tracht und Gott lacht, man plans and God laughs. Just want to point out that this is an old and often used adage, which I never understood it to mean bitter. 
Rather, it is just an expression of truth, of how frail we are, how we humans make plans as if we are here forever and in control, but ultimately we are not in control and it's all in God's hands. It's not an expression of bitterness per se, rather it's an expression of acceptance of the higher power. Schneer, Jerusalem. So Schneer, when I cite that quote, man plans, God laughs, I do it usually in the context of a story that I tell many, many years ago. I visited an Orthodox rabbi, a Chabad rabbi, in fact, in Los Angeles, who, and he was about 29 or 30 years old. He already had a few children, maybe five, because Chabad rabbis have many children when they can, and often from a young age. His wife was his age, about 29, and they were at a wedding, and she just literally dropped dead. Healthy, happy woman, and just dropped dead. And I visited him during his morning period of seven days, and he looked at me and he goes, Dennis, mantracht und Gott lacht. The Yiddish saying that we were, we've just been using, man plans and God laughs. So I'd never heard this saying before, and it struck me as coming from a place of, of if not bitterness, it was not a, it was not a, let's say, just a philosophical note. I thought it came from a slight degree of annoyance rather than just a philosophical overview of the facts of life. You may be right. I, I don't have a vested interest, but I, I think there's a, a bitter overtone. We plan and God laughs. The fact that that God laughs, it's if if the saying were something like man plans and God knows otherwise, right? That that's not bitter. But man plans and God laughs <laughs> has I think it has an element of bitterness, which is very Jewish. Jews get annoyed with God. The Jews in, in Auschwitz put God on trial. These were Orthodox Jews. And, and Abraham, the first Jew, argues with God, a very sustained argument. The word Israel, which is the name, the biblical name for the Jewish people, means struggle with God, argue with God, fight with God. That's okay. Anyway, that's the reason that I see that as, uh, as more bitter than, than your read. But that's fine. What's our timing here? 24. Good. John, 35, Wyoming, from Jerusalem to Wyoming. <laughs> How do you apply your behaviorist approach to solve the problem of having an anxious nature? Oh, back to nature. I find myself stressed out constantly for both good and not so good reasons. I find your advice of just do it very useful for other things like opening up to people, developing hobbies, etc. However, I can't find a way not to feel stressed about things, which eventually affects my daily life. Do you have any advice for this situation? Thank you. First, let me just say, and I, I don't normally do this, but my heart goes out to you. 
because I'm so aware of the fact of everyone having a nature. I, I don't have that. I have an unanxious nature. It is a gift of God or, or luck or I, I don't know, but it's a gift. And I walk around calm. I'm attacked a lot. It doesn't affect me. So when I read this, or and I know someone really well who has this, more than one person, uh, my, my heart goes out to them. So one person I know who has dealt with it, two things this individual did in his, her life that seem to have had a, a very positive effect, though I'm not sure it's ever fully curable, so to speak. And, th- well, actually three things. Uh, and they, they are therapy with a good therapist, which is extremely hard to find, uh, prayer, uh, that, that has, this person has said has had a big help in his, her life and exercise. The, these, these three seemed to have not obliterated the person's anxiety, but as have helped reduce it. That and See, this is where I come in, but I have no idea if my, my advice works because I, I haven't had to use it. But whatever behavior the anxiety creates is when my behaviorist approach would come in. So if your anxiety forces you to do, I'll give a trivial example. So someone I know her father is very anxious when they fly. Not that they'll crash, anxious about missing the flight. So we'll show up at the airport at least four hours in advance, ideally five or more. Now, I'm not, I fly constantly. Uh, I don't like to show up at the last minute because I don't want anxiety. But the idea of showing up uh, more than two hours before a flight is 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 not rational. So what would I advise somebody who has the anxiety about missing a flight instead of, all right, look, you want to show up five hours in advance, haven't, you know, big deal. That's a possible uh, response. But in this person's case that I know of, it's a he, he takes his whole family. <laughs> they all have to show up five hours. It's not like if it's only you, big deal. Uh, but... My advice in those cases is show up two hours in advance enough times to somehow get it into your brain and psyche that that's fine. With two hours, you'll have plenty of time to spare. In other words, confront what you're anxious about and then act in the opposite way or in the way that doesn't reflect your anxiety. That's my that would be my behaviorist approach. In addition to everything else that that was mentioned. Okay. Yeah. We are. Yeah. And in the meantime, Snoopy has entered. In the meantime, Snoopy has entered. Snoopy comes in for the last scene. It's it's sweet. Well, everybody, 
I look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you for watching and or listening. Thank you for watching this video. To keep PragerU videos free, please consider making a tax-deductible donation.